Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Supply Chain Radio. This is Matt Gunn, joined today by Boris Felgendrea, and we are live from the Jacob K. Javits Center in New York at Bridges 2016. Boris, we're going to talk a little bit today about one of the most impressive presentations that we saw and one of the most impressive people that we heard from this week, and that's Blake Mikowski, the chief shoe giver of Tom's. Yes. Now, um, Tom's, when I think about them, they're a shoe company that has just blown up. You see them everywhere, and people wear them with everything. But it's not just about the shoes themselves. I mean, they're pretty iconic. They're very simple, and they come with a promise. Can you talk a little bit more about that promise of Tom's? Tom's is known for the iconic Alpargata shoes that they popularize in the U.S. And they're most famous for their one-to-one model, which basically says for every single pair of shoes that they sell, they're going to give one pair of shoes away to some person in need, be it in Africa, Latin America, or in Asia, right? So that's the model. So Tom's basically invented this one-for-one model that's been replicated and transferred into other situations, right? But they were the original innovators of that one-to-one model. And one of the most exciting things about the story, about Blake in particular, is that when he started, he had never made a pair of shoes. He had never worked in retail, right? And let's listen into one of the clips. Ten years ago, I'm traveling in Argentina on vacation and noticing many kids in the streets not wearing shoes and not in school for that matter. And about two weeks into my trip, I was at a, at a wine bar and having some conversation with some other Americans that were there. And the women I was speaking to, when I asked them what they were doing for the past couple of weeks, they explained that they were doing volunteer work. And specifically, they were doing something they called a shoe drive. They were going around collecting slightly used shoes from wealthy families in Buenos Aires and then taking them to children who lived in the outskirts in some of the villages and helping them get shoes so that they could go to school. Now, I grew up in Texas and middle-class family and never had to worry about clothes or food or any of these necessities. And so it was amazing to me that there were kids just a couple hours outside of Buenos Aires that were struggling to just get a simple pair of shoes so they could go to school. And as I was talking to these women and asking them a lot of questions about their nonprofit and the work they were doing, it came up that they were getting ready to do one of these shoe distributions in a few days, and I was still going to be in town. So I went with these women, and, and, and we showed up with a U-Haul full of these shoes, a couple volunteers, and as we pull into this, this town that was, you know, really looked more like a trash dump, it was such difficult conditions, you saw kids and their parents kind of coming out of nooks and crannies and aluminum-sided you know, uh, shanties. And, and it was amazing to me to see how excited they were that we were not only there, but that we were bringing them these shoes. And so I worked all afternoon that day putting shoes on kids' feet, something I had never done before. Um, but the, the smiles I got from the kids, the hugs afterwards, their parents literally just thanking us over and over again was just an unbelievable experience. And so later that evening, I was with an Argentine buddy of mine who was a polo teacher, and I was talking to him about what we did. And, and he was really uh, interested as well. He knew the area and how impoverished it was. Um, and as I was telling him about this program, about the donation of the shoes and the giving of the shoes, he had a question that I really wasn't prepared for. Now granted, I just had an amazing day, right? I was like on a high from this experience and something that I had never done. And, and then when I explained to him, he asked, he said, Blake, if, if the kids need shoes for school and you just gave them a pair, that's great, but who's gonna give them the next pair? 
you know, kids' feet grow fast. And if this is their only pair of shoes, they're going to wear out. So, you know, what's happening next? Because the women that you met are going back to the states where you live. And, and who's going to continue to do this good work? And I remember not having a good answer to this question and going to bed that night actually feeling I don't know, I was down because I'd been on this big high from the experience, but then going to bed and not really having the answer to this question, I, I wondered, had we done something good that day, or had we just done something that made ourselves feel good? Because if we gave the shoes to the kids once, and then we got this false hope, and then all of a sudden, you know, four or five months goes by and they don't have another pair, maybe we caused more harm than good. So I woke up the next morning and I was writing in my journal and thinking about this problem, thinking about what I could do personally to help. I thought of, you know, what if instead of getting donations and being dependent on handouts of nice people to give shoes, what if there was an actual business model that could do this? And that's when I came up with the idea that we could start a shoe company, a for-profit business, but every time we sold a pair of shoes, we would give a pair away. And we called it one for one. That's amazing because it's not just marketing, it's an actual mission and statement of belief that comes from that original vision. And he's injected it all throughout the business. Now they've grown since then. They sell coffee, they sell eyewear, and every one of those products that they create, something is given back. All right, now Blake is pretty upfront about the fact that he didn't know a thing about running a business when he made Tom's shoes. He was running with a limited amount of inventory that he made with a couple of friends in Argentina in garages. And then they're just basically brought back to his apartment where he set up a website and started to meet a couple of local retailers in LA. He gets an early taste for the question, is your supply chain ready for good news? Is it scalable? I get a call from this woman at the LA Times. And the woman's name is Booth Moore, and she's the leading fashion writer for the LA Times. And she had been in the store, saw this picture, and read about this idea that I would give away a pair for every pair sold. And in fashion, she had never heard of that before, and so she was interested. So I told her the whole story of my buddy Alejo and me and the factories and all this stuff. And she said, great, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it in my column. Well, it, it was not in the column, but instead it was actually on the cover of the LA Times. Now get this, we sold 2,500 pairs of Toms on our website from that single article, and I only had 130 pairs in my apartment. <laughs> I like to call that my first of many supply chain problems to come. <laughs> and, and the truth is, I mean, this is 2006. And so from 2006, you know, as we started growing the business, I mean, we definitely have had our share of supply chain problems. If any of our retailers are in the audience, they're probably nodding their heads on how many orders for a very long time uh, that we got completely wrong, completely delayed. I mean, it was definitely the hardest part about growing the Tom's business. And, you know, when GT Nexus invited me to come today to speak, I thought, you know, this would be a great opportunity for, A, for me to say thank you for how much they've helped us. We started working with them like three years ago, but also show that, like, you know, there comes a point in your entrepreneurial journey where if, if you don't have uh, the ability to look in your supply chain and kind of know what's going on and to, and to automate things, then you're going to be at a huge disadvantage. 
And I mean, even as we got to you know, several hundred million dollars in revenue before we had you know, this relationship, I mean, we were you know, missing all different types of things. And so the, I think the, the part about this is that our supply chain problems start in the beginning, and then we got really intense in the middle. But I think now, if you are one of our customers out there, you know that it's a lot better now. And so going back to 2006, so I have just gotten 2,500 orders and, and, and I only have 160 pairs in the apartment. And the funny thing about that morning, I'll never forget, is I had a Blackberry. And at that point in time, I had set my website to send me an email every time we got an order. And that was pretty cool because we were getting like one to three orders a day. And it'd be like, oh, my aunt just ordered a pair of shoes. My fraternity brothers from college ordered a pair of shoes. It was like this positive affirmation I was getting you know, one or two times a day, that this was actually kind of a cool thing that people were buying into. But when I got 2,500 orders, let me paint this picture. I woke up that morning and I, I, I roll out of bed and I first thing I do is I turn my Blackberry on and it starts vibrating uncontrollably. So I sit it on my table and then it just starts spinning around like it's possessed. And it did this for 20 minutes until the battery died. So I didn't even really know what was happening on that very fateful Sunday morning. Where do you go from here? This is something that Blake calls his first supply chain challenge. At least one of many. Yeah, there were many to come. Yeah, he also pointed that out. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, this could happen to a lot of brands, a lot of new brands, but also to big established companies. What happens if there's a disruption in the supply chain? Or, or what happens when that order comes in from someone that you least expect it? These are pretty universal. Yeah, so, so the question not only is, is your supply chain ready for bad news, like a disruption, but also, is your supply chain ready for good news, right? When something, suddenly, things turn out for the good. In this particular instance, his shoes or his model gets featured in a major newspaper article, and all of a sudden, from, you know, from one day to another, things break through. And Blake actually shared another anecdote of those early days when his supply chain really wasn't ready for any good news. And good news was sure to come. So it rings one day about a week after this article, and I answer it, and I say, hi, this is Blake Tom Shoes. And there's this guy on the airline, and he goes, oh, yes, yes. And he's, you can tell he's a little bit anxious. He says, I need to order 100 pairs of women's toms. I want red, I want navy, I want natural, and I need them to go out today. And I'm thinking, oh, great. First off, this is the biggest order we've ever had, and it's one person ordering 100 shoes. That seems a little bit odd. And number two is we don't have any shoes. So I explain to the guy, I say, sir, I'm sorry, um, you know, um, I, that's great. You know, um, that's a lot of shoes. You know, where are you calling from? And he said, oh, yes, uh, sorry, um, I'm the uh, assistant buyer at the corporate office of Nordstrom's in Seattle. And I'm like, wow. Like, I mean, I don't know a lot about shoes at this point, but I know that Nordstrom is like the holy grail if you're trying to sell shoes. And so I'm excited, but then also have to tell him the bad news that we're sold out. So I tell him, and, and he says, I tell him, I say, sir, I'm sorry, um, you know, we don't have any shoes to send right now, but if I can get your information, I'll make sure I'll let you know when we get some more in. He said, no, 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 you don't understand. This is just a test order. It's 100 pairs. You know, just bump someone else's order and send me these shoes. And, and I say, sir, I, it's not like I can bump someone else's order. Like, I'm really sold out. At this point, this guy gets pissed off at me. And he says, listen, buddy, exactly. He says, if you can't help me, put me in touch with someone in sales. So here I am holding my crappy cordless phone that is going to start beeping at any second. 
I'm looking at my three interns eating breakfast tacos at my kitchen table. And there's this one girl, Lena, and she's kind of overhearing this. And she goes, give me the phone, give me the phone. So I toss her the phone. She catches it. Without even hesitation, she goes, hi, this is Lena, head of sales. <laughs> and literally, she talked this guy into calming down, explained that the guy in the magazine was the guy that she spoke to. Uh, and next thing I know, um, they agreed to wait at least a couple months. And then we shipped them. And today, Nordstrom's is you know, still one of our biggest customers. I love that story. And I have sort of a hunch that those early crises that Tom's had to deal with kind of sensitized them for the need to master inventory issues. And Blake alluded to it earlier in his speech that Tom's made some very smart investments into a cloud-based platform that allows them to tightly control inventory flows throughout the world, as well as to collaborate with suppliers and you know, move away from manual processes and to automate processes with suppliers on a cloud-based platform. So they're really leading there. And that, I think, is, is a direct outcome or maybe a direct result of those early experiences with inventory issues. And now they're leveraging those smart technology investments into being a world-class retailer as well as in fulfilling feeling their mission. Tom's is very clear about its mission, one for one. They use it everywhere and in every product line that they've got. It isn't just about some vague intention of goodwill. And it is not about marketing. They're not using it to position themselves. It is good marketing for sure. Right. But there's more than that. Um, how do you retroactively uh, take something like that and then inject it into your business model? What does it mean to have a purpose? Yeah, that's an excellent point because in many ways, Blake hit it easy because when he started the company, he baked the giving part into the business model. It was part of Tom's shoes DNA to begin with. So it was always authentic, right? That made it so successful. But, I mean, what's here to learn from an established brand that has been around for 100 years where giving or caring or sustainability isn't necessarily baked into DNA? And I actually asked, when I sat down with Blake, I asked him that question. Here, let's play the clip. Blake, I'm so honored that you're, that you're here today with us at the Bridges 2016 conference in New York City. On the flight over here, I dove into your book. I loved it. Loved the story. It's just fascinating. I can't wait to see you up on stage. A couple of things I want to hone in on is, one, you know, most of our audiences here today is going to be large corporations. You're talking the Nestle's, the Caterpillars, the Nikes, the Pumas of the world. Sure. You started your business with this giving model baked into the DNA of your company. Sure. But I know there's a lot of large global corporations out there who also want to do good yeah. in the supply chain. What's advice there? I mean, how do you how do you bake something genuinely giving into your business model when you're already an advanced company, when you're already starting from behind, so to speak? Any advice to anything that you see out there in the field, anybody's doing it well? Sure. I mean, I think it's a difficult thing to do because you have so many legacy issues and systems and practices when you're that big. I think the company probably doing it best is uh, Unilever. Paul Pullman, the CEO, is, is really focused on looking at every aspect of their business and figuring out how they can have you know, less negative harm on the environment, less negative harm on people. And so they're really focused on making small changes. I think that's the advice is not to try to do something really dramatic, but make small changes and see little wins. And if you're a big company, a lot of little wins end up to a big result. Yeah, agreed. Then another additional difficulty would be in the business-to-business -business space, right? Sure. So B2C is one thing. You know, your end customers appreciate yes. sustainability and treating suppliers properly and so forth. What about business-to-business -business space? I think that's the hardest space to really thrive as a social entrepreneur because a lot of times in the business-to-business -business space, you know, your customer is someone who is maybe not as connected to 
the mission the same way my customers are when I have millions of them all over the world. And oftentimes they're looking at, you know, just give me the best price. You know, there's, there's multiple bids. I mean, it's, it's a lot more. I mean, someone doesn't come into a, a shoe store and, and, and shop that way. But vendors are, are definitely shopping that way. And they got pressure from the top and within their department to, you know, do certain things, certain deliverables. So I think you can still do stuff, but I think it's more difficult. This is a fascinating story. And, you know, from what we heard in the presentation and in your own interview with Blake, we're only really scratching the surface. Where would you go to find out more about Tom's and the mission? One good place to start is a book that he published. It's called Start Something That Matters, which is a good, quick, interesting read. It shares a lot of the stories that he shared on stage with us today. I'm just fascinated. Good read. He's a, he's a good writer. That's a good place to start. So that kind of gets you riled up and maybe gets you thinking about how to incorporate giving into your current business model. All right. That's a great recommendation. Now, Boris, personally for you, what's one thing that resonates after hearing his story? The point that Blake drove home for me the most was this notion that business and giving don't have to be mutually exclusive. They can actually not only coexist, but they can create synergies and actually feed off of each other. So his story is an embodiment of that notion. Now, it remains to be seen how that translates into other business models, but hopefully it will stimulate some thinking around how you can incorporate giving into your business model and maybe more specifically, how you can embrace a larger ecosystem view. Another thing I like about his story is that it inspired so many other companies to follow suit because there are so many one-for-one business models and one-for-one systems in other areas. I mean, he himself expanded from shoes to sunglasses and to coffee, but there's other models that embraced it and there's plenty of copycats and he's cool with that, right? He actually wants to inspire. He wants to see more of those copycats going on and that's awesome. That'll do it for this episode of Supply Chain Radio. Boris, thanks for being on. Thanks for having me. (laughs) 